Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly vodcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Now, it does me great pleasure to provide a formal introduction of today's guest co-host. For those of you who've been joining our podcast, you know that I always like to read the full bio because I want you to have great understanding of the accolades, the credentials, the um, the experiences that our guest co-hosts show up to this conversation with. So today will be no different. And I am so excited to welcome and to provide information on Amira Barger. Amira K.S. Barger is a multi-award winning executive vice president at a global consulting firm providing senior diversity, equity, and inclusion and communications counsel. She is a scholar practitioner and thought leader who brings strategic communication experience that reaches stakeholders, mobilizes the community, and inspires action. She is a marketing communications and change management professor at California State University, East Bay. That is also where she is based and super early for her. So we're even more grateful that she's joining us today. She is a data-informed organizational architect who leverages design thinking to advance DEI and solve complex challenges. Amira contributes writing on Black women in the workplace, Black motherhood, and actionable steps both individuals and institutions can take to advance Black liberation. In her spare time, Amira and her family collect stamps in the National Park Service Passport Cancellation Book. They plan to visit all 417 national parks in the U.S. Hashtag Road Trip Warriors. She lives in Vicenia, California with Jonathan, her life partner of 18 plus years, and their daughter, Audrey. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen at this time. But podcast community, you know what to do. Find those emojis. Find those words of affirmation. Add them to the chat so that we can let Amira know how grateful we are that she is here with us sharing her time super early on the West Coast, but she's here with us and we're so incredibly grateful. So yeah, thank you, Amira. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. On behalf of our entire community, we are we never take it for granted when someone says yes to us. And so just know that we are incredibly grateful and appreciative of your time today. Now, before I let you lead in with greeting this audience in your own way, we do have a tradition here. And that tradition is we ask for all of our guest co-hosts to share something with us that we would not know from reading their bio or looking at their LinkedIn profile. Now, I've already shared a fun fact about you, but we know that now. So you got to dig deep and maybe find something <laughs> different for us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. I'm so pleased to be here with you. This is a great way to end the week on a Friday. Um, let's see, a fun fact that you wouldn't know. There's so many interesting things. Um, you know, I, I will say that the I'm the second eldest of eight children. So that's the first family. fun fact. And almost everyone in my family is a black belt and a multi-level black belt, except for me, because as a kid, oh. <laughs> I wanted to be like Dominique Macchiano um, and all the other gymnasts in the world in the um, early 90s. And so I wanted to be a gymnast. So I did not ever practice martial arts. And I will say today, I regret it. I would love to be a black belt. Um, so yeah, most of my family- Wait. They are black belts and it's never too late. You're, you never are correct. Late. My husband has said we should go join a dojo together and gain that skill. So you never know. You might see me next time and I it might be a that. black belt. I love that. Super fun. So I have to ask your daughter, Audrey, are you, yes. is she already into martial arts or are you planning to put her in there? Or she's, is she taking a path like her mom? Good question. She's taking the path like me. We gave her a choice. You know, we, we tell her you have to have a sport and a, um, a music activity. So she plays the piano and she swims. So she's a swimmer, oh, not a black belt, but she is a swimmer. Maybe, maybe one okay. day an Olympic swimmer. We'll see. <laughs> We're going to claim it now for, for little Audrey. That sounds fantastic. So thank you. Thank you for letting us into a little bit of splice of your life beyond what we probably could read about just in your bio. That was great. Now, one of the things that we like to do here on the podcast is we, we want to make sure we're recognizing and holding space for some of the, the news that could have found its way into mm. the media over the past week and just give an opportunity for us to touch on it. We know that sometimes some of that information could be really heavy and 
And it just feels right. appropriate for us to bring that to this, this broad conversation. Mm -hmm. And so um, I know as we were talking in preparation for going live today, um, there's been um, a release of a statement from Brene Brown. And many of you are familiar with Brene right. Brown. Um, and she has a really large platform. You know, she has several books out. And, and, and so I want us to just talk about what we're seeing um, from social media, in terms of the reactions, and just to give everyone um, a little bit of a high-level overview, and I have not fully read the statement myself, so I do want to clarify that, but she just released a statement a couple days ago about the Israel and Hamas um, situation, and um, there's a lot of people that have a lot of opinions, and so bring us up to speed, Amira, based upon mm. your knowledge, and and I would love to just get your thoughts on were there missteps? If so, what were the missteps? Mm. What maybe should have been in the consideration set? What are what are people saying, and how are they reacting and feeling? And we will also share into mm. the chat the official statement from Brene Brown. It's on her website, by the way. It is. You know, her statement on Israel Hamas has received swift criticism. It was just released on the 13th. So it's only been fresh and in the world for two days, but four months later. Um, and part of the critique is that it is lacking in depth or meaningful impact for those um, communities and the innocents who are harmed. And in many ways, a lot of the flurry of chatter that I've seen has noted that her words are mediocre at best and harmful mm -hmm. at worst to the communities most impacted. And part of the critique is that the statement is sort of this predictable allyship that we tend to see from white feminism. It came four months after the fact. Um, one of the questions that I've seen people ask is who asked for this <laughs> four months no. later? Um, so that's part of it. But it essentially amounts to when you all have a chance to read it personally, it's sort of a, a both sides statement, right? Mm -hmm. And we're in a place in time with societal issues where people want to know where leaders of significant influence like Brene Brown, and she is that, where they stand on an issue and to call out historical context, to call out harm and to have a more nuanced take. And in her statement, um, many saw it, including other white female advocates as a permission slip to her very large and predominantly white female fan base to continue practicing predictable allyship, meaning mm -hmm. it's superficial support that might sound good, it's convenient, um, it sacrifices nothing meaningful, and it arrives too late. And so what it does is it serves to uphold the status quo. And mm -hmm. I would say in reading her statement that it, to me, it curiously <laughs> lacks nuance. Um, and she states that she is admittedly confused about why both sides statements are viewed as weak and problematic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she stated the reason for it coming four months later um, as the death of her mother, which I and many others are very sympathetic to. The reason that struck me in particular is that as a black woman myself and others um, who are reading this, grief is a burden that we at the margins have to shoulder alongside the weight of injustice. We don't have the privilege to be silent. We don't have the privilege to not fight for our lives. We don't have the privilege to go away into a corner despite what's happening in our lives, very big things, including the loss of family members and loved ones. And so that really struck a chord with so many advocates of we are sympathetic. It's terrible to lose a loved one, especially a parent. Right. Um, right. And yet we don't have the privilege to steal away into the corners and to not fight for our communities. And so it's indicative, again, of this um, predictable and performative allyship that shows up when it wants to, as opposed to as opposed to when it is needed most. Mm, that is that is a mouthful. And I appreciate you sharing your your perspective um, I want to stay here just for a moment because it sounds like um, that many have criticized that it feels more like a, a PR stunt than really mm -hmm. a, a meaningful, timely response. Um, 
What do we say to those who maybe just process in different timing and process mm. differently? And mm. maybe they're spending time really trying to get fully up to speed so mm. that they're very principled in how in which they're showing up to these social complex topics and conversations. I want to just get your thoughts on that as well. And by the way, the journalist in you is coming out so beautiful. I just have to say that. <laughs> I received that. I fully received that. Um, I would say that it depends on who you are. Brene Brown yeah. is a woman of significant means, imports, and influence. And yeah. she has quite a large following. And timing and putting a stake in the ground matters in the case of Brene Brown because of this psychological concept of social proof. People look to their social circles and to people that are like them for their cues on how to respond to what happens in the world, including societal issues. And with Brene Brown, she has, again, a huge following, yeah. particularly of white liberal females who say yeah. they to take action, who say they care, who say they want to stand in the gap. And so for her to release a statement so late and a statement yeah. so benign, so mm -hmm. both sides, mm -hmm. it's problematic. I think for an everyday person, um, I definitely understand the need to understand historical context, which her statement lacked. Um, she did not yeah. recognize the historical context of settler colonialism, apartheid, or um, the disproportionate impact of the last four months on mm -hmm. innocence um, and on the Palestinian people in particular. And so for her, the measuring stick is different. It absolutely yeah. is with that kind of power. And in many ways, I would call it ill-gotten power because of her privilege and her whiteness. Um, you have a different measuring stick. The, the stakes are different for you and you need to speak up in different ways and in more powerful ways. Um, that's what I would say. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I, I'll just take this moment to interject that here on Attentional Conversations podcast, we don't shy away from topics that are controversial or topics that where there may be a divide of opinions and perspectives. And so I'm always grateful when our guest co-hosts are willing to, um, you know, take on those conversations um, and, and just the benefit for us to hear different thoughts and perspectives. And so thank you so much, Amir. I so, I so very much appreciate that. Now, I want to move to the fact that you and I have something in common, and we've talked about this a bit, um, and that is our marketing communications background and yeah. how we blend and intersect that with this work of DEI, right? And one of the things that I often tell people is that while my background is, is more common, I bring all of those skill sets to the work of DEI. I do so because it's not just about how in which we're helping people to understand the constructs of diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging mm -hmm. in theory and in practice, most importantly in practice, but it's also about how are we creating and controlling the narrative? How are we bringing people along and providing the clarity that's needed that helps to minimize the resistance? Because I do believe mm -hmm. that resistance is often a lack of clarity. And so that's where the marketing communications for me, I find, is incredibly beneficial. Now, your experience is a little different because your Marcom has a lot to do with, again, I, I reference your journalistic abilities and the talent that you're bringing to this conversation. I would love for you to just share with this audience, how do you see the two intersecting and how has it benefited your career? So much so. I believe that DEI and communications have more in common than people realize. I talk a lot about how the work of communications and public relations is about reaching different audiences and multi-stakeholders. And so I'm yeah. dealing with all kinds of um, publics, if you will. When I was in the nonprofit space, the, the publics I dealt with were, dealt with were volunteers, board members, donors, elected officials, and the same in my work today at a global firm advising clients across those three sectors of government, nonprofit, and for-profit. And so much of the work of strategic communications and PR is about recognizing patterns of behavior and helping people adopt new patterns of behaviors. It's Love about that mobilizing people towards some sort of action. That's why we have press releases. That's why we shape key messages so innately, right? We're trying to move and mobilize people towards action, whatever the call to action is, whether it's to buy a product, use a service, vote a certain way, um, advocate for a community, that's yeah. behavior, 
right? And it's yes. behavior change. And the work of DEI is about unpacking policies, practices, behaviors, and beliefs as well. So the two go hand in hand, um, because what's true is that the way that we frame the world with our words and our chosen yes. language dictates how people interact with the world. And it dictates what people will do because of how they see the world before them. And so our words and our communication are powerful tools and there's nothing insignificant about the words that we choose and how we choose to use them. And we are seeing this now. There's um, quite a bit of anti-DEI backlash or a, a rebranding wow. of our efforts, if you will. We saw this early on yes. with the word woke or the words critical race theory. And now we're seeing it with the words DEI. And there's a rebranding to more palatable language like belonging, culture, mm -hmm. respect at mm -hmm. work, everything except DEI. And um, <laughs> people are weaponizing language yes. to increase the distraction from the good work that we're trying to do for real people in the world. And it's intentional. It is. It's very intentional. Very well stated. Thank you for um, for sharing those thoughts. And so for, for those who may be coming to you and they're saying, Amira, we are we mm -hmm. are witnessing and you know we're experiencing all the backlash that's happening. And while we are for the work, we are thinking about kind of changing the way in which we we talk about it. And you know, because language matters. And so um, what advice do you give them? Are you advising people to move away from the traditional language just to make it more palatable? Or what would be your counsel to those folks? No, that's not often my tactic. <laughs> I don't believe in being more palatable. It's funny. Uh, one of the things I often say to my daughter is um, be inconvenient today. And people ask me, what's your personal mission? It's to be as inconvenient to the system and the systems oh. of injustice as possible. And so, no, I don't believe in adopting more palatable language. That is the very last piece of advice I would ever um, provide to anyone. Part of what I think is important right now is that the work continues to happen. And yes. the world of DEI, while some people woke up to it four years ago, which is interesting, it's not a new field, right? This is a field that has been around for years. I think back to the legislation, Voting Rights Act, um, the Civil Rights Act. This is all work that has been happening around that time and even before that time. And for many years, DEI practitioners did this work quietly did it stealthily mm -hmm. as best mm -hmm. we could within organizations and right. across leaders who didn't understand. And so today, as we see this rebranding um, happening and the threats of um, legislation, I think about the, I think it was 20 states that have passed legislation around DEI, 51 attorneys generals who have threatened the Fortune 100 regarding their DEI initiatives, yeah. the overturn of affirmative action, you name it. So there are a lot of threats and people are scared, but DEI remains um, legal, it remains ethical, it remains valid. We saw a statement from the leader of the EEOC saying as much. Um, and so I know people are being cautious right now. They are consulting their legal teams and their leadership yeah. teams. For me, what's important, the words matter, but I'm also keen on ensuring that the work continues to happen, even if it's that we go back to some um, quiet advancement of the work as we determine the, the words that we use. I want people to dig in deep and to do the work. I'm not as worried about the public relations of it all, the branding yeah, of it all. Right. I want the work to happen. I want material change for the experiences of employees and the experiences of consumers, um, because right now it is a distraction tactic. We have to contend with it, yes, but just make sure you're continuing to do the work. Don't slash the budgets, don't slash the CDOs, do the work. Do the work, yeah. Yeah, I think I've relegated in some regards um, in speaking with clients too. If you decide you want to change the nomenclature, how would you refer to it? As long as you continue to do the work, the work needs to get done. So don't, 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 you know, be dissuaded from, from continuing to do the work. So you have, um, you've written a number of, of articles that have generated great level of engagement and inspired a lot of people and allow people to feel seen and heard. And so I'm just curious from your vantage point, Amira, do you have maybe one to two 
that you have uh, mm. maybe starred as as your favorites that were most meaningful to you based upon either the response or either the um, the way that it made you feel to release that work to the world. I would love for you to share a little bit about that right now, if so. Yes, there are two that come to mind. And one of the thing about things about my writing is I started out my um, writing journey as a true opinion writer. And so what I'm trying to do is to insert to the public consciousness ideas, oh. thoughts, challenges, struggles, and barriers. Um, they may not always be top of mind. I'm not a big fan of the, the how-to writing because there are other amazing people who do that. Um, so I tend to go with opinion writing and that's important to mention because the idea with opinion writing is that it is a true opinion and that it's somewhat <laughs> controversial. So that's my favorite kind of writing to do. And so there are two articles that come to mind. I mentioned inconvenience. I actually wrote a piece last Black History Month about my daughter for MSNBC. And I said, again, my mission in life, I wake up every day to be as inconvenient to the systems around us as possible. And I teach my daughter that as well. And I think about the legacy I want to leave in the world. And so being inconvenient, you know, some of my favorites said it best, John Lewis said, never ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. James Baldwin yes. said, the place in which I'll fit will not exist until I make it, right? And so I think about those good troublemakers, and I think about my role as a DEI practitioner, as an organizational architect, but also as a troublemaker. And so mm -hmm. the second piece that comes to mind because of that is a piece I wrote that really upset people about how diversity, equity, inclusion should not sit in the traditional HR human resources framework. And that really ruffled some feathers. Um, but that's because as DI practitioners, the trouble we seek to make is so counter and it's not conducive to um, traditional human resource frameworks and functions. Yeah. Um, so those are my two favorite pieces um, that I've put out thus, thus far and so many more, but those are two that come to mind. That is great. I love this message of, yeah, let's inconvenient the systems. And so we are, we have shared into the chat, both of those articles, they are yeah. definitely worth the time. And um, I want to, you know, go a little bit deeper into the second article that you referenced, because mm -hmm. the whole HR question has come mm -hmm. up several times on intentional conversations. Folks have heard me speak mm -hmm. on it. But um, so I want them to hear from you. Um, why is it critical for DEI initiatives to be led outside of the traditional HR framework? And from your perspective, Amira, how can organizations effectively integrate DEI into their core mm -hmm. strategies where it's embedded throughout all areas of operation? Mm -hmm. I mean, the simplest way to put it is that the things that we are working to advance in DEI, the transformational change that isn't only about institutions, but it's about structures and it's about yes. societal change. It's not conducive to the charter of human resource offices. Yeah. You know, there's a, um, not a meme, but a, an image that has recently been shared in the last two weeks around LinkedIn from Race Forward, where it talks about um, what I always refer to as the multi-dimensions of addressing DEI and leading with race. And so it's a an image that has um, internalized, interpersonal, institutional, and structural, right? And those are often the four layers and levels that we have to address in order to get closer to equity, in order to get closer to justice. Your internalized white supremacy, your interpersonal interactions with the humans around you, the institutional policies right. and practices, and the structural pieces of our systems, our legislation, our government that continue to keep barriers in place and perpetuate harm and injustices that we are seeing in the workplace, which is why DEI offices exist and are necessary. And human resources, while there are amazing and beautiful people who move differently than traditionally, um, they are created and erected within institutions to protect the institution. Now, I know there are individuals who look to and seek to help and protect people. But those individual one-offs, those um, outliers are not indicative of the overarching charter of human resources within right. the structures of our corporations, our nonprofits, our workplaces, our higher ed institutions. And diversity, equity, inclusion is an overarching strategy um, for the business, but also for society. And to relegate it to the corners of human resources is 
in my perspective, um, a statement of values. Mm-hmm. As this is yeah. a thing that we don't care about entirely. It's a thing that we are going to um, put handcuffs on as much as we can. And I really think that it needs to live in an organizational structure, reporting to the top leader, the CEO, and have the autonomy to move, have the budget, the access to make the changes that are necessary um, in partnership with that top decision maker. Um, And of course, I work largely in a large corporate context. So I understand for Mm -hmm. small businesses, for small nonprofits, um, often they don't have the funds to have a separate individual Um, or a separate department. And so we would have to think more creatively about how we embed it across everyone's role for those organizations. But I would argue that that is in fact the reality we're trying to work towards anyhow. DI is everyone's business. That's true. Yeah, no, very well stated. And I we're definitely aligned in that opinion. I have have expressed to you that um, certainly they need to um, collaborate. There needs to be, you know, certainly a lot of, of conversation exchange, but it should not rest solely because it's so much bigger than just the people function. And mm-hmm. for those organizations that are really looking to embed this work throughout every aspect of an organization, you can't just have it singularly kind of positioned within, within HR. I mean, we were just talking about marketing communications. How right. many missteps occur because there's not a lens of DEI within that department? So that's one okay. example. And then mm-hmm. even when we think about like purchasing and procurement, the yeah. supplier diversity piece. Yes. I mean, you know, again, so there's so many examples we can point to that that helps to communicate that this work extends across every aspect of an organization. So those companies that are relegating it very specifically to HR only, I think that's a misguided decision. So I, I'm always mm. um, I'm always glad when um, the platforms are being leveraged to be able to send that message. Um, so I want to I want to now I want to still talk about your writings because your writings are so powerful. But, you know, you write extensively about um, black women in the workplace. Um, mm-hmm. So could you discuss some of the unique challenges that black women face? And then what are some steps that organizations can take to create a more inclusive environment specifically for for black women? Mm-hmm. The number one thing I always go back to is that as Black women, we face a combination of racial and gender biases in the workplace. Misogynoir, right? Misogyny is about the dislike of women. Misogynoir, um, specific to Black women, is also about um, the um, racism because of the color of our skin. And that intersection of those two um, dimensions of our identity leads to distinct challenges that can impact our career advancement, our sense of belonging, um, and our overall well-being. You know, we see a lack of visual representation in leadership roles. And, you know, so often you'll hear said that you need to see yourself in order to aspire towards that. So we want to see more female CEOs, more black female corporate paid board members, Mm -hmm. right? We want to see ourselves in the roles um, that we are aiming for and aspiring towards. Um, So that lack of representation in the workplace is a huge barrier and a challenge that we consistently um, contend with. Uh, Pay equity, we know that we're paid Mm -hmm. pennies on the dollar to white males, but also to white females as well. Um, And so that pay gap persists across every industry and every level. And it contributes to this financial insecurity um, that is often a part of our common and shared history and story because again, the structural components of how our country here at the US context was built. So we often find ourselves um, with less familial wealth We find ourselves um, edged out of educational opportunities, which tend to have a correlation to financial wealth. Um, And the overturn of affirmative action did not help that case (laughs) any. Um, And so that's a huge barrier. I also think about the workplace. Um, Microaggressions is the official term, but they're never micro. They're very macro and aggressively aggressive aggressions. Absolutely. (laughs) Forms of day-to-day discrimination, whether it's about our hair, 
I've seen so many articles lately about children in high school being suspended because of their locks or their braids. Mm -hmm. Our hair is still an area of discrimination. I love the Harvard Business Review piece by Dr. Janice Gassimasari. That was an amazing piece. Yes. Um, The Crown Act advanced um, in partnership with Black women and and Dove um, to help protect us and our ability to just, you know, simply wake up and show up as ourselves with the hair that comes out of our our heads. That's a barrier in a way that um, this shows up for us in the workplace. And then I think the last thing that always comes to mind is the exclusion from networks and opportunities. And again, I think the uh, overturn of affirmative action is indicative of that because we see that so often these fraternal organizations, whether it's sororities and fraternities, just other networks of that nature, they tend to have um, the ability to propel you into a different kind of trajectory. And so I do think that there is a an upstream and a downstream impact that we're going to continue to see because of the overturn of affirmative action that will impact Black people, Black women, especially because Black women are the most highly educated. We love to go to school because we have to be twice as good for half as much, um, but also other communities that are at the margins are going to continue to see an erosion of access to those networks and those opportunities that help propel us out of the economic instability and the financial um, scenarios we find ourselves in because, again, of the historical structure of our nation, we tend to have less access to financial wealth. And um, that wealth can change the world. Money is in everything, but I really push back on people who say money can't buy you happiness. Give me $5 million and I'll show you otherwise. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So I can't help but to think about, you know, this is an election year and I would love Mm. to get your perspective and opinions on how how do you think that organizations, what should they be doing proactively um, Mm. just to make sure that climate is one where we are minimizing hate speech and we are showing Mm. up um, to the workplace without um, people feeling... um, devalued because that is the propensity of an election year when it's so Mm -hmm. controversial as as it is. And so what are your thoughts on that? And and what should organizations be thinking about to prepare for that? Mm. You know, so many of the corporations that I have the pleasure of working with, part of what's happening right now is an effort to stand up and advance respect at work campaigns going yeah. back to mm-hmm. reminding the same people, mm-hmm. reminding people about what it means to have these conversations i'm not of the camp that believes you can't discuss politics at work because the personal is political and as a black woman i see that that there's no aspect of my life that isn't touched by being civically engaged and aware of the policies and practices Absolutely. in our government so that's always interesting when i hear people say that um so the personal is political i truly believe that and I believe that the table stakes things need to have need to be in place and it's amazing to me how many institutions still don't have those you know you need to inform Mm -hmm. people they have the right to leave to vote and they have that time available to them right and as we come towards March 5th and (laughs) um, the primaries um, and then November it's important to make sure that you're communicating that to people um, because there is a societal um an insidious effort to suppress voting of certain communities. And so reminders about good information. And I think back to the Edelman Trust Barometer that talks about how people um, really trust information from their employer, the information Um, they believe is vetted, it's clean, it's hygienic information, if you will. And so providing information on voting rights um, and what you have available to you and how to go about voting, providing a toolkit of some sort. I think that's something that organizations can um, do that can absolutely move the needle because um, I know you're interested in all things AI. What we see right now with AI are the, the robocalls 
telling people, yeah. um, oh, voting isn't on this day. It's on, it's the next week. It's the, the week after. Um, so yeah. I think we have to do as much as we can to educate communities about voting and provide toolkits to families. I remember a few years ago, I was working with an early childhood education organization who created a toolkit for families, reminding them that you can bring your children with you to the polls because so many people were not coming because they didn't have childcare yes. and they didn't yeah. think children were allowed in the line or in the voting booths and they are so I think people need that information we shouldn't assume that people know and understand the process um you know I think most people went through government class in high school but there's so much that you don't learn in that class sure. as communities and as corporations I think we can do a good job of um, not only respect at work campaigns and helping people understand how to interact and have productive conversations but also what it means to be a voter in this country um, and the rights that you have available to you. I love that. That is some sound and sage advice for for organizations that may not already proactively be thinking about that. Um, and do certainly make sure that you are vetting your resources that you're sharing to your employees. Make sure that the resources um, can can really validate accuracy. Um, of the information that you are sharing. Um, I love that. So in just a moment, we're all going to shift and we're going to take questions from our audience today. And so if you're part of our Zoom community and you would like to present a question or a comment, um, then you can let us know that by using the raise hand feature. And at the appropriate time, I will call upon you to unmute yourself. I will add you to the spotlight if you desire and, uh, and have you share, or you also can just place your thoughts and your questions. Uh, into the chat. If you're joining us LinkedIn Live, go to the comment section. We are watching that closely and bringing those comments and questions over into our Zoom community. And so while you're percolating, maybe on those curiosities that are coming up for you, I'm going to go ahead and go to the next question. And Tracy, I see your hand and I will come to you. Um, you'll be the first person that I'll come to. But I, we're in Black History Month right now, Amira. So, yes. and I shared in the beginning as I was sharing some slides that, yeah, we need to make sure that we are, you know, continuing to think about Black history all throughout the year, not just this month. And um, I mentioned that I think we are seeing some um, increase in, in, in more meaningful, I guess, ways in which people are um, showing up to support and recognize and create equitable opportunities for, for Black people. But um, that is, that's just kind of what I'm seeing kind of on the peripheral. And so I want to know your thoughts. Are, are we getting better at this? Are we um, falling behind still? I know there's more work to be done, but what are you seeing? It's been a quiet Black History Month. <laughs> Uh, disappointingly so I think about so many of the the friends and peers and the sisters we have in this space um yeah. Elizabeth Liba for example posted yeah. yesterday um yeah. and many others that the a mass of requests during Black History Month that we saw over the last four years some of us have had zero requests zero yeah. Yeah. zero requests it's it's eerily quiet and it in my perspective and those I have conversations with, it feels as if Black History Month this year was forgotten um, and it's not top of mind for everyone. So that that's what I'm feeling with and that's what I'm sitting with. That's what I'm feeling yeah. and sitting with. Do you that. think that the increase of Juneteenth programs is somehow replacing that? Not that it should, I'm not sure, suggesting right. that at all, but could that be maybe a part of how organizations are deciphering you know, when to um, put forth, um, you know, more initiative at celebrating Black individuals and recognizing the need for, for greater parity and equitable initiatives? I think it's possible, um, yeah. but I'd like to see organizations pay both the, the mind and the attention that they are warranted considering um, yeah. how important a demographic to the nation absolutely um, direction our community is so yeah it's been disappointingly quiet um and i yeah. i don't necessarily think that the um these sort of fa fabricated milestone moments on our our u.s calendar um are indicative entirely of how people are feeling or the work that's happening um yeah. but i do think that is a stark um shift from what mm -hmm. we've experienced the last four years. And so it feels that there is unsustained or unsustainable um, action um, and allyship yeah. around those moments. 
Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Okay, Tracy, you are up, your hand is raised. And so I'm going to add you to the spotlight. Thank you for being here. What is your question or comment today? Amy, um, so I joined a little late and I didn't hear the first part of the comment about Brene Brown and her <laughs> statement. Um, so if there's some reference to that that could be put in the chat, I would appreciate it. But my question is, I believe in calling people in not calling mm -hmm. people out. And I, um, I I believe in having dialogue, but I also respect and understand our fatigue. Um, people that continuously go through attacks and, and resistance, it can be hard. The struggle is real. Mm -hmm. So how can, what would be your advice? I'm just curious to hear your perspective about when people make missteps and, and it's not intentional, but they don't really understand how certain statements are not really received as authentic from them. Certain efforts for allyship are not really perceived as authentic. And what might, what might people like me do to kind of get that dialogue going um, instead of making people feel like, oh, you're fake, get out of here. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for the question, Tracy, and thank you for being here. You know, so much of the tense and difficult conversations that we need to have happen best in um, proximity to people in terms of relationship. So one of the things that I advise, especially at an individual level, is who is best to deliver that message, right? I, I work in communication, so I think about the message, <laughs> the messenger, and the mechanism. And so I think about relationship um, proximity. So, you know, if I have to have a difficult conversation with my in-laws, if they're, they're racist, you know, I might implore my husband as the person in close proximity to them relationally, the person that they are most likely to hear from and least likely to cut off entirely. So I think, think about your relationships in the workplace, um, personally as well, who is best to deliver that message is important. Um, I believe in calling in and calling out and back to to our early conversation um, is that it people always hate this answer it depends <laughs> it because it does it's but it a does. very consultant and lawyer answer it depends and it does and I think for someone like a Brene Brown someone of great import significance and influence with a platform as large as they have going back to that concept I mentioned of social proof people look to these individuals to influence the actions that they will take and so when those people um um, fail to take appropriate action and action that is in partnership with the communities that are most harmed and impacted, they need to be called out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Amir. Thank you, Tracy. And Tracy, to go back to your question, we did share into the chat and we'll share it again because it may have been before you joined. I'm not sure, but there was a document that gives you the full context of Brene Brown's statement. And it's actually um, a page on her website. So thank you so much for being here. We do appreciate it. Okay, so I'm not seeing any um, other hand raised at this point in time. So I'll continue going to my next question. But again, if you have questions, this is your time and your opportunity. We have 10 minutes remaining. I want to talk about design thinking because I know that that is part of, of how you like to show up to this work. Yeah. And um, I want you to explain exactly how design thinking contributes to more effective DEI strategies. Mm -hmm. Well, design thinking as a concept, it's a problem solving approach that really yeah. prioritizes things like empathy, collaboration, and an iterative experimentation process to address complex challenges or issues, any issue within, whether it's in the workplace or in um, communities, so that we can get to solutions that are built um, by the people who are impacted and for the communities that they belong to. And so I think it is a very powerful tool in diversity, equity, inclusion, because it's so important as a principled way of practicing DEI to understand the expressed needs of the communities you're working with. Again, whether that's a community locally through a nonprofit, the community of employees in your corporation, or a community of constituents if you're an elected official. And so design thinking helps you with empathy and understanding because there's a very defined process and set of steps that we work mm -hmm. with 
to bring people in and to the table and to honor their lived experiences and their perspectives. Um, it's a user center centered approach, meaning again, those who are most impacted, those who need the service, those who need the right. product, those who need the policy or the legislation, their um, experience and their needs are what is centered in the approaches that we shape um, for the solutions that are um, being iterated on. Um, there's a concept in design thinking about iterative prototyping and testing. Right, So we do pilots to understand what are the gaps that we still need to think about across a policy, a product, or a service that's being provided and to gain feedback, again, from the users that will actually benefit from the thing, whatever the thing is. Right. Um, so it's a, again, it's just a powerful process that helps you to think very meaningfully about who's involved, who's going to use this, um, and it helps you go slow to go fast. And so it's yeah. an important, I think, tool for diversity, equity, inclusion practitioners, and anyone in any um, institution can benefit from the um, principles of design thinking, because again, it really is about honoring people's perspectives and experiences. Totally agree. Totally agree. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, now, I would be remiss if I did not try to get this other topic in in the mm -hmm. remaining time that we have, because as I was really promoting today's show, um, I certainly articulated this as one of the topics we would address. So I want you to expound upon how Black people can potentially perpetuate white supremacy in mm. corporate or PWI spaces, predominantly white institution spaces, and suggest ways to address it. Because I think it's a really important topic. We, mm. as Black people, are not immune to falling into the trap and being conditioned mm -hmm. for white supremacy. And so I think it's such an important conversation to have. It is. And I think part of it understands with understanding what that means the that being white supremacy and what it means to perpetuate it and so um tema okun um in partnership with many radical black scholars um mm -hmm. and others um put pen to paper on the 15 characteristics of white supremacy so mm -hmm. um take a look at that. You can just Google Tema Okun, 15 characteristics of white supremacy. Um, and it's things that people see as commonplace, um, but can be quite insidious when wielded improperly. So things like professionalism, what does it yes. mean to be professional? Um, things like um, continued and um, mandated growth, always seeking more, always seeking better. So there are these yeah. characteristics that it's important to understand and the way that it shows up for black individuals and sometimes we inadvertently perpetuate them um, is because it can be internalized. Right. The way that we are socialized, the way that we are brought up, the um, conversations and people that we're around, we can internalize some of those characteristics um, and assimilate. Right. There are so many yeah. pressures on black people to assimilate into predominantly white institutions, of which most our institutions are, whether it's oh, our university, schools, <laughs> our um, religious or faith um, places those are often predominantly white. Um, and so there are power dynamics within the different organizational structures we're a part of. So I think assimilation is a big part of it. Um, there's still this unfortunate belief that there's only room for one of us. You know, right. if, if the white people let us at the table, there's only one seat and only one of us can be there. Um, that's not how I live my life. I move through the world believing that there's enough sunshine for all of us and we can all stand <laughs> under the sun, but not everyone moves that way. And so I think there's an internalized um, prejudice and an internalized racism that often has to be unpacked. And that's individual work for us to do. And that's why it's so important to go back to, there are four dimensions that we're working across here to get towards justice, equity, and change internalized, interpersonal, institutional, and structural. And I think as we do the work individually to unpack our um, adoption of those um, characteristics of white supremacy and how right. we wield them, um, we need to also in tandem think about legislation because that's a structural piece, right? Absolutely. We need to think about our policies and practices within organizations because that's an institutional piece. Um, so it's that assimilation, the tokenism 
um, in the U.S. context, there's hyper individualism, right? That I need to do what's right for me. There's only enough room for me. I need to right. get mine first and foremost, as opposed to a um, community approach. And I think that also depends on how you're brought up in terms of the the culture um, and um, your your ethnicity and the the principles that your family holds. So it, it depends. But oftentimes in the U.S., there's a hyper individualism that I think causes many Black individuals to perpetuate um, some of the um, harmful prejudices and actions that we see happening across um, other communities like white individuals. Yeah, yeah, and how unfortunate that is because we need to protect the full turf. If one of us wins, all of us win. And so right. I hope that that message is resonating with some of the folks in this community who are also champions of um, this body of work. So in our remaining three minutes, I want to close this out and I want to give you an opportunity, Amira, to do so with the question of, you know, kind of looking ahead before I get to that question. I want to mm -hmm. thank this community for showing up week after week. If this um, show has produced some content that's been valuable for you, we hope that you will share it out with others. Again, they have the podcast, the replay, so many ways to get this content. We're grateful that you shared this time with us. And um, here's the question. As we look ahead, what are your aspirations, Amira, for the future of DEI within both corporate and academic realms, because you do operate in both? And what role do you see yourself playing in the future? Hmm. That is a really good question. And so <laughs> many avenues we could go down. You know, for me, what I what I want to highlight here, because many of the other wonderful guests you have can highlight others, it goes back to the internalized piece for me. And that's for every individual, whether white, black, Latinx, Asian, Pacific Islander, you name it, indigenous, yeah. the internal work that we each need to do to be a part of this collaborative effort to move our institutions and move our structures away from inequity. And there is there are so many resources, free ones even in your communities across community-based organizations and nonprofits um, for you to do that work of understanding things like the language, understand what are the 15 characteristics of white supremacy? Right. How do those show up in my life and in my world? And a part of that internal work is to listen to the voices at the margins, find the Black women, the radical Black women who have been doing this work. Um, Dr. Jen M. Jackson, Jock Dr. Janice Gassimasari, Dr. Mm -hmm. Nika White, others who are doing this work to bring awareness and to educate on the actions that you can take in partnership with communities. And so I want people to remember that, that there is internal work that you need to do um, as an individual to be a part of something more than predictable or performative allyship. And I say this all the time to people that true allyship costs you something. And that cost can be money, it can be a job, it could be reputation. And in the most um, severe of cases, it could be life. And mm -hmm. I think back to the greats of MLK, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks and others, um, black individuals have given a lot and we've had a lot of cost and we need allies who are willing to stand in the gap and to do the work to remember that true allyship costs you something more than ink on paper, more than a statement that comes too late. An incredibly powerful way to end today's show. And we have shared all of your contact information, all the social media platforms that you're on into the chat as well as I believe my team was able to find the 15 characteristics of white supremacy um, document. So I hope that you all will take advantage of connecting with Amira and taking a look at those resources. We're so grateful for you today. So grateful. Have a safe and wonderful weekend, everyone. We hope to see you back here next week at the same time for Intentional Conversations podcast. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Thank you.